Welcome to the Workplace Forward Podcast with your host, executive coach Tegan Travato, founder and CEO of Bright Arrow Coaching. Are you a perpetually busy, always overstretched leader or executive who feels there's never time to keep up with leadership trends in an always changing landscape, much less self-care? Workplace Forward will help you overcome both challenges and gain peace of mind. Through Tegan's conversations with executives, experts, authors, and innovators about their leadership journeys, you'll get quick hits of two things you need the most. Essential insights to help navigate the future workplace and best practices on the more human side of leadership so you're empowered to take care of yourself while leading others. Enjoy some well-deserved time for yourself to learn and recharge. Let's get started with today's guest. Tegan, take it away. Brett Townsend loves all things consumer insights. He has a passion for being the voice of the consumer and promoting all the great things the industry does for companies. He's worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, such as Pepsi, Lay's, Electrolux, Jack Daniels, Moen, Rubbermaid, and Dickies. He's led high-performing teams, developed scores of new products and brands, and made companies lots of money. He's also on the board of directors for Insights Association and is serving as chairperson for 2022. And at his core, he is a relationship builder, a people person, and enjoys his time away from work. Given his background, we are really pleased to have him join us today to learn about his beliefs when it comes to the future of leadership. Brett, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Tegan. Yeah. You know, before we dive in, I'm going to pill for you with questions today about your leadership experience over the years and, and of course, what you think the future of leadership has in store for us. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about, in a nutshell, like the size and scopes of teams you've led. We've gotten the taste for the organ- the brands you've worked for, but tell us a little bit about the scope of your work over the last few years. So it's been very broad. Uh, you know, in Consumer Insights, if it's done correctly, you're really kind of the the heartbeat of the company almost where you have visibility to a lot of different areas whether it's product development marketing sales things like that so and that's been the case with the roles that i've had where a lot of exposure to different parts of the company really learn a lot of different things a lot of matrix type uh, organizational Mm. structures and working very cross-functionally with a lot of groups so i've worked on a lot of teams whether it's dotted line or just, like I said, collaborative. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, having the, my own teams with the direct reports. So yeah. it's been a, a, a nice variety of, of ways to work within a company. Yeah. And I will just emphasize, as someone who coaches across all kinds of different spaces, the, what I would consider challenges that you must have had working so interdepartmentally. Like it is a privileged seat, right? Because you get Mm -hmm. to your point, you see so much, you learn so much about the business, but my gosh, getting that many groups to play together is nothing short of art most of the time, I imagine. It is. It all kind of starts with relationships. You know, if they, if they trust you and if they know that you're really in it for the good of the company, then then it usually works fairly well. I, mm-hmm. I think part of it too is understanding where the other people are coming from. You know, everybody has their own goals and things that they're and their own KPIs that they're judged against. And so they're trying to develop work that helps them meet their KPIs. And then you you kind of see that sometimes KPIs don't line up completely. And so right. sometimes you have competing interests when it comes to within a company 
And it's not like it's adversarial. It's just kind of the way that it's set up. And so, yeah, it, ta- it is very much an art on how can, how can we help people personally succeed, but then also help the company and the product succeed mm-hmm. with what we're doing. Great. You know, <laughs> this will lead nicely into my next question about you, because I've heard that you're referred to as the anti-Michael Corleone. <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah. And I, and I love the Godfather, so it has nothing to do with that, but it's just, you know, his whole thing when he decides that he's going to go kill the people that tried to assassinate his dad, he just said, it's, it's not personal, it's business. <laughs> and that's kind of the mantra whenever you see a mafia movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't subscribe to that at all. I don't think the workplace is a family. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just say that right um, out loud. And, and Adam Grant, the, the organizational psychologist at Wharton, made popular a term that I've been using for years. But, you know, the workplace is a community of people that yeah. are sharing the same goals and same objectives and all working together very closely. Mm-hmm. But because of that, it's very personal. I think work is, is some of the most personal stuff that we do as individuals. We spend more waking hours with our coworkers than we do our own families. And so in many cases, and so people put their heart and their soul and their mental and physical and emotional effort into a lot of what they do. And, you know, a lot of people will spend nights and weekends to meet deadlines and to really put a lot into what they do. And it is very personal personal for them. And so that's really how I approach everything I do from a leadership standpoint is just to have that core understanding of how personal work is for so many people. Mm -hmm. I'm so refreshed to hear you say that because I think we have for many decades gotten away with saying it's not personal, it's business. And Mm -hmm. it, and I, we are watching that die away, but there's I love the fullness of your answer and understanding of that. I could almost feel it coming through your voice, how much you care for people because they care so much for their work. So let's keep going on that. Tell us Mm -hmm. more about your personal leadership philosophies. So really, it's if you don't get to know your people on your team as as people, then you're, you're, you're going to be behind the eight ball from the very beginning. And so I, I think, and it's also important that team members get to know each other a little mm-hmm. bit outside the office. I'm not saying you got to be best friends or, you know, always want to go have a beer with somebody after work, but just that you know them. Because if you keep things sterile in the workplace and all you see your coworkers as is coworkers, then it, it can become very impersonal. But if you know about them a little bit and their hobbies and their families and things, and you're saying, well, then you don't just look at James as your coworker. You're like, oh, that's James. And he's got two sons and his wife, Cindy, who I've met. And oh, and I know that they like to go vacation in these other places. And so they become real people to you rather than just coworkers. And it's interesting that there are workplace environments where people spend a lot of time together, but don't really know each other. Yeah, true. And so you kind of have this, this atmosphere of, of people who are very familiar with you or each other in one way only. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can kind of limit the, the way that you work together. And I, I think it's a lot easier to assume positive intent and to not think that people are always out to get you or doing things just to make you mad when you know them more personally. 
Yes. Uh, I think it's 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 a lot easier when you're removed from the personal side of things to take offense or to think that somebody's trying to backstab you or is out to get you or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when you have that kind of a, a personal atmosphere where people know each other a little bit more, then it does foster a little bit. It, it fosters, it makes it easier to, to work together, kind of fosters more of that community environment. Yeah. How do you help your team members get to know each other on that level? I think I think a lot of folks listening would appreciate some new ideas on how to do that. I don't know if I have any new ideas. So one of the cool one of the cool things I like to say is that I coached junior Olympic volleyball for ten years while I was also doing my career because I played and uh, played volleyball and then coached for a long time and and it was all every year you know I had very high level athletes but I always had a new team every year and so the trick was always how do you get them to play better together on the court and you know obviously it's the skills and the training and everything else but then there was that trust that next level of you could all be very great skill wise, but not necessarily trust each other on the court. And so every year I would do things with the team to get them to kind of know each other a little bit better. Again, didn't have to be best friends, didn't want to have to hang out, but just so you had this level of trust. And so I've kind of pulled some of those things into what I've done in the business area. And so, I, like I said, it's not really new. I don't think I have anything groundbreaking. I think we would, you know, we eat lunch and do a lot of meals type together. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll go out. We'll, you know, everybody brings a plus one and, and we'll, we'll just go out to dinner. And, and in many cases, I've just paid for that myself because the company won't cover things mm-hmm. like that. But it's important to me to do that. We've done team building fun stuff, you know, escape rooms and just, I mean, any number of different things that we've done. We've gone to minor league games. We've gone to, you know, baseball games. When I was living in Dallas, we would do some sporting events. It's one of the big things to do there. And then I would just ask the team. I'm like, hey, what what are things you guys want to go do? And what are ways that we can, you know, kind of get to know each other a little bit and let them say what they want to do. So a lot of things are are based around that. I mean, I've gone to a couple of movies with some mm-hmm. with team members before. It's like, you know, one person hasn't seen Star Wars. So it's like, oh my gosh, we gotta, you know, have <laughs> you a movie night that. or yeah, we gotta right. fix that or we gotta do something. <laughs> so I think it's just really it could be anything that gets you out of the office, that gets you doing things that you would do with friends. Mm-hmm. And then just have where it helps people just feel like it's okay to share a little bit about themselves and where you can kind of get to know people outside of the work area. So yeah, nothing new, nothing really groundbreaking, but just, you know, it takes effort. I think that's the big thing is you yes. have to plan. It takes effort. It takes time. And, and it takes time that in many cases are after hours from work or something, which again, you have to want to do that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's, those are just things that I've done that have kind of helped that over the time. And I, and I will say it comes easier to me because I'm just naturally a people person. I'm naturally a a relationship person building relationships and things like that. And so it's just something that I enjoy. And so it makes it easier for me to do that. But I think just the, the results that I've seen on my teams over the years of doing that type of thing, it really Mm -hmm. works and really pays off. Yeah. And, and so I will kind of point something out for listeners and maybe even for you, because you're just like, this isn't groundbreaking. And I hear what you're trying to say, right? Like <laughs> yeah. escape rooms, not, not brand new, but what is unique to me, Brett, about your presence as a leader that we could all learn from is the intentionality that is so clear 
that you are intentional about making sure the opportunities are there for folks to know each other personally. And that is often a box checking exercise that's done once a year, maybe twice a year. I especially appreciate that you've dug into your pocket so the plus ones could come because I've even learned over the years how much more I learn about my colleagues when I see them as mothers, as fathers, as spouses or partners. There's a whole other side to experience of the folks we work with when we have that privilege of seeing inside of their lives a little. So I think there's more to this than you're giving yourself credit for about the uniqueness of it. And so I would encourage our listeners to really think about as we think about our own leadership philosophies, what is our approach or our thoughts on how we can help each other know the fullness of our lives and personalities. So, And I think the word you use there, intentional, is really good because I think we all know naturally charismatic people. They just kind of have this presence and this charisma Mm -hmm. about them. But to be a good leader is very intentional. And I know very few people that can just wing it as a good leader. You know, you can have leadership qualities, but to be a good leader, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of intentionality into doing that. So I think that's a good way of putting it. Totally agree. On that note, how has your own leadership evolved the last couple of years? And I ask about the last couple of years because of the volatility of our systems, our social Mm -hmm. structures, our economies, politics, right? So how's that impacted you and, and what's prompted any changes you've experienced within yourself as a leader? Yeah, I would say early on, let's even go pre-pandemic. I think when Mm -hmm. I was younger, like a younger leader, my thought was, oh, I want to be that cool leader. I want to be the, you know, the one that everybody likes. And so you're more interested in being liked, I think. And so this giving feedback wasn't necessarily something that I did very well, or I was always encouraging, but not always giving great constructive feedback when something was wrong. Cause I just, I wanted everybody to be cool. But then it was, of course it was, as I got into it, you realize that people crave feedback and yes, they really they want to know how they can get better and grow and stuff. And so we can talk about some of that later, but mm-hmm. um, so I think that was one of the major shifts that I made is to realize that giving very good constructive, honest feedback is not just a good thing, but it's really craved by people on the team. So I think that's one thing people can learn or one part that people can really kind of get over that uncomfortable feeling of having to give constructive feedback because just know that your teammates really want that. So I think that yeah. was the first thing. In the pandemic, again, this came a little more naturally to me just because of who I am, but it's, it's flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know, just being okay with it. I mean, I remember just the very first call where I had a team member and their kid was home from school, just like we all were working from home and kind of came into the Zoom shot and just kind of stood there in front of the camera. <laughs> you know, yep. and she was so embarrassed and like, oh my gosh, wait, hold on, let me get this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's fine. Just mm-hmm. let him stay there. It's mm-hmm. okay. And you know, and then you have And then it was in subsequent meetings where he'd be sitting on our lap or we'd have all, you know, pets in the thing. I mean, in the, in the call, like everybody knew this, but I think just the whole thing was flexible. Just realize that everybody was trying to do the best that they could and trying to manage things and just 
working moms with young kids, I, I mean, working parents, but especially as we know, a lot of the burden fell to women during the mm-hmm. pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know how they did it. I mean, my yeah. kids are older, so I didn't really have to worry a lot about it. I just had to worry about a bored teenager at home. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, just the Herculean effort that so many people were putting in to still work, but yet try to manage things at home just required a lot of flexibility and understanding. Mm-hmm. And you know, just extending grace to people, uh, which I think is good in relationships anyway, but yeah, just, just allowing people to figure it out and not yeah. try to come in with all these rules right from the beginning. And I think that just, just mm. that one little bit, and, and I, and it wasn't just me. I know a lot of people who were that way and, yeah. and it, and it made all the difference while people were trying to navigate, you know, the, the reality that's been the last couple of years. Yeah. I love that. I heard being flexible, being understanding, extending grace and allowing people space to just figure it out. And I could argue that all of those traits are good to have even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, because when people join a new company or join a new team or given a new job within the company they're already in, there is that adjustment. There's that period when people are trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I think just having leaders understand that and be able to extend that courtesy to them and extend that that space for them to be able to do that because you know this is so funny it, it i think we all know people who we used to work with or who used to be one level above us who then elevate into a senior executive role and then they just seem to become totally different people mm-hmm. and and a lot of times everybody else is asking what happened to him? What happened yeah. to her? Don't they remember what it was like to be yeah. us? Don't right. they remember what it was like to be at, at this level? And so I think, again, that's so important that as leaders move up in an organization that you don't, that you don't lose that, that you remember the people, that you remember what it was like to be at that level and how you felt. And it's like you hear this all the time in, in sports when uh, a former player becomes a coach and it's like they're trying to straddle both sides of the fence a little bit. And, and the coaches that do really well are the ex-players who are good coaches are the ones that can be the coach like they're supposed to be, but also remember what it was like to be a player and be able to relate to them on that level mm-hmm. as well. And mm-hmm. so I think that's part of that, you know, as leaders move up in an organization, just remember what it was like and try to relate to and remember what it's like to, to be in that position. Yeah. And further to that, like just one little multiplier on that, that we may not be able to relate in some cases to what it's Mm -hmm. like because the conditions or the identities or, you know, the stigmas or whatever, all the things that an employee or a group of employees may have not going in their favor. Sometimes we can't relate to that. So the ability to even step further beyond to like part one is here's what I remember of what it was like to be in that position. And part two is I also can't imagine what else it must be like for them. Like to never forget that part, right? Well, and I think it's too, like you said, with not only the pandemic, with a lot of the social issues that were going on, I think what happens is, is that good leaders are known by their team as to who they are and what they stand for before crisis hits. And Mm -hmm. it was really interesting because there was a person on my team who, when a lot of the social justice things were going on, I reached out to him and I said, hey, I really apologize that I've not been, not reached out more proactively and, and told you how much I support 
things that are going on and, and how much. And, and he just said the coolest thing to me. He said, it's okay. I know where you stand mm-hmm. and I know who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and it was because we had established that before a lot of the, before the social justice thing started happening and before people started going out of their way to say, this is what I stand for. Yeah. The fact that he said, I already know you, I know what you stand for. That mm-hmm. was a really cool moment for both of us to just be able to say, you know what, it's, it's already there. And yeah. you don't have to try to scramble when something happens to figure out who you are as a leader or to try to help your team know who you are as a leader because they already know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Justin Seaman, the CEO of Roti said something to me along the lines of, we can't start operating with new leadership practices under crisis. Like we, we're not going to be good at it. We have to go into the type of leadership and the practices that are innately ours already. And I, I was really struck by that. And that's very much what you're talking about. Like leaders already, to your point, they're already known for what they stand for. Now these crisis opportunities or these crisis moments are opportunities, right? To really exemplify it and embody it even more. But it's a really powerful point. I totally agree. It's like what we said about the pandemic. You know, the pandemic didn't start any new trends. It just accelerated trends that were already happening. And I think it's totally. the same way with leaders during crisis. You know, mm-hmm. when you're in that crisis, you don't establish new leadership capabilities. It just enhances what you already have or magnifies what you already have. And so leaders who don't focus on people, leaders that are only focused on results, you know, they're more focused on the what than the how, you know, then that just comes out even more during crisis. And so positive and negatively, however it is, it it amplifies during crisis. And so you want to have established something already as a leader that when that crisis hits, then you're your team already knows who you are and how you're going to respond and kind of help you get through what that crisis is. Yeah, that's a great point. What are you noticing employees are expecting of you or the organizations you've worked for as an employer that seem new or different as a result of the times we've been in? If anything, let me not put any facts out there, but you know, like I don't really know if I can speak for companies. You know, mm-hmm. I think everybody, other than the, just what the general things are, there were a lot of communication about, you know, be understanding, let's let people kind of go through this transition as we're working from home now and try to figure things out. You know, there were those kinds of things that, that mm-hmm. went on. But I really think that, you know, what I've noticed that employees are looking for is they, they want empathy. Yeah. And I think in many cases, corporations don't, practice organizational empathy the way that they Mm -hmm. should. I think you can find empathy on individual levels and on individual leader levels, but I think companies can be far better at at having organizational or institutional empathy. And we talk about that from a consumer insight standpoint from my industry is that when a company or a brand has this organizational empathy for the consumer, then it really shows in everything that they do with that brand. And then the same thing goes with the way you treat employees. You yeah. know, if you have that organizational empathy for people, then it really comes out in the way that you treat them, not just on a day-to-day basis, but when crisis hits. And then I think the other thing too is, is just an awareness of people's mental health Mm-hmm. and creating a safe space for people at work. Mm-hmm. I think that that probably is the biggest one, even more than empathy. 
is that there's so many people are dealing with so much and people are dealing with things that they don't even know that they're dealing with. Like just a personal experience. Like it turns out that I was suffering from anxiety, not severe anxiety where it was debilitating or anything, but that I was suffering with anxiety for years and I didn't even really know what it was. And when my doctor mm-hmm. finally said, you know, you've, you've got some anxiety and it's likely you've been dealing with this for a very long time then it just Mm -hmm. made so much sense to me. Like all of the things that would happen over the years that I could remember, I'm like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense and (laughs) things like that. And so, I mean, the personal experience has helped me, but I think just in general, uh, just being aware of the demands that are placed upon people with work and with family and everything else and the stress that people feel and just being aware of that and being Mm -hmm. very concerned and, and very aware of people's mental and emotional health is a big thing. And, and, and having people feel safe at work, that they can express their feelings and express their needs at, at work. It was, I think that's very important. So, you know, it's so fascinating to me when I just scan back over all the notes I've taken while you're talking, everything you've talked about so far really does fold into creating a culture of psychological safety, which is what you're talking about. But they could each be such big lifts on their own, right? Like intentional leadership, intentionally getting to know the people you work with, the empathy factor, especially institutional empathy as a leader trying to help create that or influence that in your organization. These are big lifts. But At the end of the day, you're also talking about being a really good human with other humans. What else would you say you do as a a regular practice in your leadership to help create that psychological safety where people do feel safe at work? First of all, to me, I think is you just set the example that you can be vulnerable as a leader and that you can be open as a leader and that you can have this this judgment-free zone. And so I'm I'm quick to admit where I'm wrong. I'm quick to admit, you know, my own frailties and and joke about myself or you know just mm-hmm. like you just not take yourself so seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think when when people see that I'm willing to be vulnerable and talk about my own weaknesses or talk about things that I can improve on or I can say, look, this is something that's going on in the company and I don't think this is right. And here's how we're going to fix this or here's how we're going to work with it. I think they just see you as, you know, they they still see you as, as a leader and maybe not necessarily that you're on their side, so to speak, but that you're just, you understand them and you get it and that they feel that they can come to you or that they can say things in a meeting and not be criticized or, or be condemned for anything that they say. And so mm-hmm. just creating that, I can't even describe the, the many different levels of things that people have been able to say over the years in a team meeting or in a one-on-one that, you know, and even they would admit they're like, wow, I didn't think I'd ever feel okay to say something like this, but I'm going to. And then they just say mm-hmm. it. And- I love that. And so I, that's where it starts for me is just setting the example, letting them see my own humanity and and seeing that I'm not perfect and that I don't ever expect to be and but that I'm just that I'm just trying to be better. I think mm-hmm. that's really what it is. It's just as long as we're all trying to be better, then we can totally accept weaknesses. And then I think with that it's making so there's the setting the example of with yourself and exposing your own humanity and vulnerability at times. And then there's also just 
creating the, the space and the time. You know, if every interaction you have with your team as a leader is strictly business, 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 then that's not going to create an atmosphere, even if you're really good at that. I, I think you have to create time that allows people to be able to speak freely and yeah. where it's not just about business, but again, kind of going back into that intentional amount of time. And, you know, so when we have team meetings, a lot of times I don't, I don't like to dive right into the business. I'm like, Hey, how was your weekend? You know, what, what do you got coming up or what's going on with the kids? And again, if you know everybody already by this point, then you can add, you know, how, how's Sally doing? How's little Jimmy doing? You know, you can ask yeah. about partners. You can ask about kids. You can ask about things and, and people can tell you, oh yeah, hey, we went out to the lake and we did this. And, you know, so I like to have the first 10, 15 minutes of my team meetings just kind of be, let's just talk and, you know, mm -hmm. what's going on? How are things? You know, that kind of thing. And then you kind of get into the business of it. So again, it's just kind of incorporating those little times and those spaces to allow people to do that. And then I think the other big thing is when you do is having regular one-on-ones with your team, however mm -hmm. that is, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't advocate necessarily for the, a certain amount of time period. So you can do them weekly, twice a month, once a month, however it is. But in those one-on-ones, what I feel is important is that you let the, the team member control that one-on-one. -on -one. So I've had leaders, I've had, you know, people that I've reported to where I go in for a one-on-one -on -one and I have things that I want to talk about, but yet the one-on-one -on -one is dominated by my, my manager yeah. and they're talking about all these other things. And I'm like, well, we talk about projects and we talk about those other things in other meetings, you know, why does this also have to be that way? And so I tell everybody on uh, my team, I said, Hey, when we do those one-on-ones, you're in charge of the agenda. I may have one or two things that I'll bring up if, if there's nothing going on. But I said, if I don't get to anything on my list in the one-on-one, -on -one, then I consider that a victory because that means you're doing the talking and you're doing the asking and you're sharing things. And how's your career going? Are you happy where you're at? And I kind of give them a list of things that they can talk about. But I said, that one-on-one -on -one time is yours. You know, you yeah. bring up and you talk about whatever you want to talk about because that's why I'm there. And so that helps them, again, feel that, that they're in control and that they can talk about things yeah. without worrying about, oh, my manager's going to try to slip all this other stuff. In. Yeah. Well, you know, this is another thing that on its face, we might go, well, yeah, of course I have one-on-ones. But step one is often not checked. Like, I can't even tell you how often I see as a coach one-on-ones not happening. So much, much less the quality that you're talking about or the empowerment that you're extending to your employees. I, I love, love it. I've worked with teams where I have watched as a team coach, I've seen team members end up on performance plans that I know ended up happening because the boss got blindsided by things that weren't going well because they weren't having their one-on-ones, right? So it is a disservice to all that quality one-on-ones aren't happening. And, you know, if I recall, you said there's a pretty particular model you like to use in those, or maybe it's for performance feedback, the four and two method. What's that about? Yeah. So that can be however often you want to do that. But basically you, every company has their own structure on how they evaluate their employees, you know, uh -huh. some type of a competency thing or some kind of a leadership model or, or mm -hmm. something. Everybody's got one. And so I think within that leadership model, you give your employees every time 
you know, I, I wouldn't do it every one-on-one. I would do it once a quarter where I would say, here are four things from our competency model that you are doing very well. Mm. And that you, uh, that I am very pleased with how you're doing. And then here are two parts of the competency model, which I think you can continue to work on. Mm-hmm. And, and what I always stress to people is those two things don't mean they're your weaknesses. It mm-hmm. just means it's something that I think you can continue to work on. Mm-hmm. And so just having them have that, and I didn't make that up, by the way, that, that came from Electrolux, which I thought was a really good, a good way of doing it. But, and, but it's really grabbing onto that. And again, doing it and making sure they know, and then they can see at any given time where you feel they're doing a good job and where you feel they can continue to work. And it gives them something to continue to work towards. And then it doesn't have to change every quarter. There were times where the four strengths would stay the same or the two things to work on would stay the same. Mm-hmm. Hopefully though, over the course of the year, things are changing where they're doing things better. And so you acknowledge that by moving it into, Hey, here are four things that you're doing well, especially if it was one of the two things you asked them to work on. Yeah. And if they're really putting in the effort and they're doing a good job you say, Hey, I've now moved that into one of the four strengths that you have. Mm-hmm. And I'm now giving you something else that you can work on. So as mm-hmm. long as you're updating that and, and doing that, and it doesn't have to be that particular model, but just something where you're letting people know here is what you're doing. Well, here are things you can work on and it's ongoing feedback rather than kind of only twice a year at you know mid-year and at the end where people are getting feedback. I, I don't think that works. People kind of need that constant does feedback. does not work. You are correct. That's right. I totally <laughs> agree. I love that. I also see the intentionality of this too, right? That you're really thinking throughout the year about how your employees are performing and And yes, competencies take a long time to develop sometimes, sometimes entire careers, right? Depending on what it is. So I love that you kind of extend some, some runway for that. You and I, when we talked before recording, one of the things that came through so clearly is the importance to you of being a good boss. And you talked about, you know, some of the, you referenced some of the data about why people leave or stay at their jobs, which we all know it's often because of a boss, right? That they'll stay or go. And, and you gave an example of, you know, people will stay in some really bad environments if their boss is really good. It's like un, unreal how true that is. So tell, tell us about some more of the things that you think fall into making you a good boss. Oh. I don't know. I don't even know how good I am, to be honest. But I'll say on the flip side of that, too, like you'll hear people that work at these companies that everybody thinks is so amazing. It's like, and they quit. And you're like, yes. why did you quit that job? Right. That, I yes. heard that company is amazing. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, the company's fine. I just couldn't stand my boss. You right. Know, you have the flip side of that. So, yeah, I think that's been proven over and over again that people stay at jobs or quit jobs. And the number one reason for both is the mm-hmm. boss and, mm-hmm. that they have. And it's just, so important because that is your world. You know, you can work for this broader organization that organizationally may be great, but if you're working for a boss, it's just, you're miserable going to work every day. It doesn't matter what else is going on at that company. Yeah. Um, So you can do that. But, you know, I think the things that I just try to be is really Mm -hmm. all I can say is, is that I, the things that we've mentioned, you know, I don't want to repeat creating the safe place. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think there's two things that I haven't mentioned that I can add to the list is that I Mm -hmm. always try to show gratitude 
I, I always make sure that my team knows how grateful I am for their efforts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that companies in general, just again, from, from talking to people and, you know, we all have networks, we all have friends and everybody always talks. And, and, and I think the one thing that I hear a lot is that, you know, my company just never said, thank you. They never showed gratitude. They never acknowledged my contributions to the company. And I think, you know, everybody likes money, everybody likes vacation time, things like that. But, you know, you can only pay so much <laughs> that your company will let right. you. You can only give so much vacation. What are the things that employees crave or that, you know, that we all crave on an ongoing basis, whether it's in relationships or at work? And it's just knowing we're appreciated, knowing mm-hmm. we're valued, knowing that people are grateful for our efforts and just expressing gratitude is, I think, such a big thing. And people just people love hearing a thank you, or you're doing a great job, or I'm grateful for what you're doing and grateful for your efforts. I, I, that goes such a long way. So I really try to express gratitude and show gratitude. The other thing that I can attribute is, and I can thank my dad for this. My dad was a, a PhD educator his whole life and an entrepreneur. And he came up, he developed one of the many personality tests and and systems Mm. that are out there. And it was color-based and it was four colors, blue, orange, gold, and green. And it's based on the the theory that we all have all four colors in us to some level, but everybody has a dominant color and then a secondary color. Mm -hmm. And then the other two are, are kind of in a lesser area. And working with him, doing trainings with him, you know, I would facilitate some trainings with him on the side. I got to know that system so intimately and very oh, yeah. well. And so what I do is within a few minutes of, of meeting someone and talking with them, I'm able to identify in most cases what their primary color is. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is when I understand, okay, this person's a blue. So here's what I know about blues. And so how do I relate to the blue? Oh, this person I can tell is green. So how do I relate to them? And this is the attributes of of that color. And so we do that. And so what it does is, is what we would always tell people is that there's a color that you are, you know, this is like who you are, but then there are things that you can do. It doesn't mean you have to be somebody you're not, but it means there are behaviors that you can do that are within a certain color. And so what I try to do is, is that I'm a certain primary color. And then when I am working with someone who is not my primary color, but is another another color, I don't have to become that. I just have to do the behaviors that relate more to that color. Mm -hmm. And so then you're relating, and again, it it takes effort and it's intentional and things, but, and it's even the language you use, you know, you would talk to someone who's more emotional and feeling, you would say, how do you feel about that? And then they can tell you about that. But someone that's a little more analytical, you would say, what do you think about that? Right. You know, and just even it's little words like that, that relate more to them um, than that, but it's just doing behaviors within those four colors that I know can relate to the other people. And again, that is something that is unique that I, that I know it's, it's something that I've learned and developed and honed over many years. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that's just easy to do, but it is something that has been so valuable for me. And it depends. I mean, there's so many out there. It's not like my dad's is, is the only one or the best one, but there's so many out there that if people learned those and did that, then I think that would really kind of help them relate to people on their level. What is that one called? Uh, it's called True Colors. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. I know listeners are going to know what you're wearing to put that in the show notes. So thank you. You know, and it was uh, Daryl Townsend, mm-hmm. Dr. Daryl Townsend was my father and you can Very probably nice. find it both, but yeah. And I thank would you. say, and I'll add one other thing Sure, is that, that I am a firm believer in playing to people's strengths. Mm-hmm. And when I read the book, Strengths Finder a number of years ago, it just resonated with me so much because I'm one of those ones that you know, understands what I do well. And, you know, the whole basis of it is that we spend a lot of our lives working on things we're not good at. (laughs) And we love the underdog Mm -hmm. story about someone who overcomes, you know, things to do something that they're not really that great at. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, And so, you know, they give the example of Rudy, the, the football player at Notre Dame, who was not athletic, who was not a good football player who spent, you know, years getting the the crap kicked out of him in practices. And he made one tackle in one game and all of a sudden he's a hero. And it's like, but you really, that wasn't really your strength. (laughs) Being an athlete was being a football player. And the point that the book made was, you know, what could he have done with his life if he had identified early on what he was really good at and then spent mm. all taken all of that effort that he put into trying to just be a low-level football player, put right. it into that, you know? Yes. And so I think that's really what I like to do is, and, and that's one of the first things that I ask team members when I become their manager or when I start a new job is like, what are you good at? Mm-hmm. Tell me what you like doing. Like what part of this job Get you out of bed in the morning. And then you allow people to do things wherever possible to do what they're good at and yeah. to feel like that they can come to work and and not have to constantly be focused on things they're not good at because mm-hmm. that is draining to people. Mm-hmm. But if people can say, oh, wow, I really, I, I enjoy this part of my work. And now it's like the main thing that I get to do. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And so very, I've done that a couple of times where I've come into a team, figured out what everybody is good at. And then within the first couple of months that I'm there, reassign the team based on that. Yeah. And then I've found that people just really enjoy that and that they enjoy the work that they do because they're now doing things that play to their natural strengths. Yeah. I love that. It's clear to me, Brett, that over your journey in leadership, you have been very intentional about learning. And I'm calling that out because I think that, I don't know about you, I was just put in a leadership position one day. <laughs> Boom. All of a sudden I'm a leader. I have people that were looking to me for guidance and all the things you told me that you just talked about. Right. And I had zero skill on how to get, I had intuition. I had talent. I had zero development in those early days. We had to just and figure that it out. happens to a lot in Most a lot of, of companies. Time. It's like yes. what hap- the way that people are promoted is you're really good at doing your job. So yes. we're going to now promote you to manage people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that doesn't work. You know, sometimes so people right. can be really good at their job and just not be in a position where they can manage people. That's and, right. But yet that's really how management is decided in, in many companies, not by, are you a good leader? It's do your, do your job well. Yeah. So I had to grow that in myself. You have mm. been very intentional about growing that in yourself. What advice would you give executives about their continued development and growth? And the intentionality behind that, whether it's things you do or it's a mm-hmm. philosophy or a belief, like what, sh- what should people be thinking about in terms of how they continue to grow their leadership? I think, like you said, it's, it's intentional. The, when I first started coaching volleyball, you know, I had been a player for a while. And then when I decided I wanted to get into coaching, I knew the game really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I was one of those typical average players that, you know, coaches rather than goes on to have this huge playing career. But, you know, when you just kind of, I, I learned the game really well. And mm-hmm. so I was able to, but, but I didn't know how to coach. Mm-hmm. And I think early on, I had someone who taught me and how, who trained me how to coach. Yeah. And she was very good at it. And, and, and my first job was coaching girls, not boys. And so mm-hmm. I'd grown up playing boys volleyball. And then I was coaching girls and it wasn't like I was being hard on them or bad or anything. But one of the other coaches was a woman said, you have a lot of good principles, but let me teach you a little bit about coaching and specifically coaching girls. Mm. And I was so grateful to her for doing that because it really then started to have me make that transition from player to coach and be able to learn how to coach. And I think that is true when we're people managing, it's just be intentional and always be learning. And, you know, a lot of executives I know are doing that. They're reading books and, and looking at and, and watching speakers and doing things like that. So I would just say, continue to be intentional on learning how to be a leader, learning mm-hmm. how to be a people manager, because it doesn't come naturally to most people. Even if you're a parent, there's a difference between being a parent and being a, a leader of adults, you know, yeah, a people yes. manager of adults. And um, some there, similarities there in are, fairness. I was going to say, yeah. there, are some pro- <laughs> there is a lot of cross-pollinization <laughs> that you could do there, but yeah, there, there are differences. And so I think just be intentional about it, read, find people that you like, that, that have good leadership ideas and and follow them. I would say, watch other leaders. I mean, I learned so much of leadership by watching my managers, good and bad, and asking them for advice and learning things. And some of the things I use today have just received great advice and direction from past leaders. And so that's really what it is. It's, I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't think I have some secret formula or thing Mm -hmm. that nobody else has figured out because obviously there's a lot of great managers out there, but it's just never stop learning how you can be a better people person. And then as culture evolves, we need to evolve with it. And that's Mm. where it's this creating this safe space and allowing people, you know, space for mental health and, and, and showing that kind of empathy and, and what people may going through, be going through from a social aspect or whatever else, just really being on top of that. Love it. Where can listeners find you online, Brett, if they want to follow you, learn more about your work? So I, I would say I'm, I'm kind of only a marginal social media mm-hmm. <laughs> maven. So I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, Brett R. Townsend. And, and then my Instagram is at Brett underscore R underscore Townsend. And okay. uh, I post some work stuff there, but it's mostly just the outdoor stuff that I do here in North Carolina. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we could all use more of that inspiration in the middle of winter. So we'll be sure to link to all of those places that Brett just mentioned so you can find them online. And in closing, Brett, the question I ask all of our guests is, you know, first a reminder that the, the whole intention of this podcast was to try to discover the behaviors, practices, beliefs, and skills that future leaders must possess to be effective as they lead these rather chaotic systems that seem to be speeding up rather than slowing down. So to get your read on what's required of future leaders, just finish this sentence for me. Leaders of the future will. Uh. <laughs> uh, if I just, one thing is, I would just say we'll be, we'll be empathetic mm-hmm. and we'll be concerned about the well-being of their employees. 
Yeah. And that's all encompassing. When you're concerned about yeah. their well being, you're going to coach them, you're going to give them feedback, you're going to give them space, you're going to, you know, create that kind of safe space for them. And I think it's just going to be more important as, as time goes on that the people leaders that are more focused on the what they do than the how they do it, they're going to be phased out. They'll always be there, but I think they're going to be phased out. And the leaders that really show that empathy and show that they can create that kind of safe space for their employees, those mm -hmm. are going to, that's what a future leader really is going to be. Mm, perfection. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Tegan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Workplace Forward podcast, where leaders and executives can stay ahead of the curve on emerging leadership ideas and self-care best practices. Guided by executive coach Tegan Travato and her expert guests. Please take 60 seconds to help others discover the Workplace Forward podcast by going to iTunes to subscribe, give five stars, and leave a comment. Want to learn more about Bright Arrow Coaching and Leadership Development? Visit the website at www.brightarrowcoaching.com. See you next time. And while you're filling your team's cups, remember to take care of yourself too.